0: Cutting Through Tech, Season 2, Episode 8, How to Successfully Raise Capital for Your Startup with Philippa Sturt. Welcome to Cutting Through Tech, the podcast all about technical strategy for women leaders today. I'm Maxime, technical coach to women entrepreneurs worldwide, and you're tuned in to Season 2 of the show, which is all focused around mobile apps but also tech startups and today we are joined by the wonderful Philippa Sturt who tells us all about how to raise funds either through angel investment or VC investment for your startup. Philippa Sturt is managing partner at Jolson Law Firm in London and has worked for the firm for over 11 years. Now she loves working with startups and I think this passion really shows through in the interview. Today, Philip and I talk about the challenges that women face raising funds, the overall things that investors are looking for, how they might surprise you and the fact that the investment process is actually not as binary as you might think. And most importantly, I think for today, how the landscape has changed given the current coronavirus situation. Are venture capitalists still looking to invest in companies? What has changed and what do you need to know if you are looking to raise funds for your business. Philippa will also be sharing some powerful learnings and stories from founders just like you who have gone through quite the trials and tribulations or even some misconceptions when putting together agreements or coming to terms with their investors. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I had an absolute blast talking to Philippa and I think... I definitely learned quite a few things for myself, especially reflecting on the fact that, you know, I'm a woman running a business and how I, how I need to come across if I, if I were to ever talk about the, you know, the future and the potential of it. Maybe not to necessarily to raise funds, but I think some of the tips that, that you'll hear about in this interview um, hold true for, for most cases when you're effectively pitching your business and thinking about it. It was also inspirational because as you'll hear, she'll share about certain people that have gone through quite a bit to to get where they are today. And I don't know, it just gets me really excited for all the startups that are yet to come that I know that you're working on as well. Lastly, I just wanted to mention that at Parts in this interview, uh, we do discuss primarily UK-based funds that are currently available um, specifically for COVID and also to tax break schemes that we run here in the UK called EIS and SEIS. This may not be applicable where you're based, but there might be an equivalent. Either way, there is still a lot that you can take from this, firstly, this interview as a whole, but even the sections where we do discuss some UK specifics. But I just want to give you a heads up before you thought, what future fund are they talking about? (laughs) and if you are uk-based well definitely have a think about it philippa discusses what it is what you can do how you apply for it but also what the risks are if you do get the funds without further ado welcome to the show philippa how are you doing today i'm good thank you and for those that have just joined in anything you'd like to share about yourself or your background
1: what I absolutely love doing, as you said, is working with early stage companies just because of the enthusiasm of the people normally behind the company. So the founders, we tend to work more with founders and entrepreneurs than with VCs or angel investors, although we do a little bit of that as well.
0: Where did the the passion of working with uh, founders and early, early companies and startups come from? <laughs> um, I don't really know. Where did the
1: passion come from? I suppose just... Many years ago, we have worked with and still work with um, Innocent Smoothies. So when they first started, the three guys came to us to help them with their initial investment, seed investment from um, a guy called Maurice Pinto. And we acted for them all the way along to where they sold to Coke. We still act for Coke stroke Innocent now. And I suppose seeing the three guys they have a very entrepreneurial spirit. They're, you know, The kind of business they ran was totally different from your normal, boring, everyday businesses. And seeing that kind of business made me look more at the startup scene. And the more you look at it, the more fun it becomes because everybody's business is different. Everybody has their own kind of unique idea. Some of them don't work, some of them do. I've given up trying to guess which is which, but spending time with those kind of people makes my job more fun because they have a passion themselves and i guess that's where it came from really
0: as you say everyone's got a passion and brings something really interesting to the table when they start a company we always i think start a company because we a really care about what we do and b we seek to make some kind of change in the world going forward now to give people um at home the best chance of success you naturally deal, especially when it comes to agreements with those who've managed to successfully raise funds. Where do you think they've managed to stand out or achieve what where others maybe have failed? There are a lot of things. And
1: I, I guess the first thing I would say is it doesn't it's not necessarily all about your idea. You know, obviously, and you know, the first thing that would come to everybody's mind is I need a successful concept and idea and sort of a really unique idea proposition to make this work and obviously you do and you know having a competitive advantage in the marketplace is going to make your business look more attractive to investors but that's not really the only thing because it tends to be around you know how you present your idea to investors as to potentially whether you get the money or not now you know in a negative way i might say that being a middle class white male helps you raise raise money But that shouldn't stop everybody trying to raise money. And I guess the sort of various things that go into it are things like what your management team actually looks like. If you've got people on that management team that are experienced, that have maybe had a successful fundraise before, even if it's not you, that you have a breadth of knowledge and experience within that management team that makes a fundraiser think that you're going to be able to successfully execute your business plan. Because what they're really looking at, you've sent them a pitch deck, it's probably got lots of nice pictures in it and colors, but it's also got graphs showing where you are going to get to in the next three or five years. And they need confidence that you are going to be able to execute that and make it happen. So relevant experience and bringing into your business people that can fill in the gaps that maybe you don't have the knowledge about, but they do, is going to really help an investor kind of think that it's a a viable proposition and market opportunity is is really what it's all about if i hear the word disruptive one more time i may scream so i wouldn't necessarily recommend calling everything disruptive because often you meet people who say that they've got a disruptive idea and it turns out that that's just not the case um early traction having customers even if they're not paying customers, people that are trying out beta testing, having a pilot, maybe having done some strategic partnerships with people that can add to your business proposition. All of these things are going to really encourage somebody to invest. At the end of the day, the most important thing, and particularly with tech, obviously, is your intellectual property and your technology. What are the risks around that tech? What have you built that tech on? You know, is it open source? Is it proprietary information? Have you protected your ability to access whatever it is you need to access in order to make your business work? All those things are kind of really important. Another thing I would say is quite important is understanding financials, but being well prepared. If you're going into a pitch, being able to talk through your financials and defend them to somebody, that's going to help you get a successful raise away, and not being Dogmatic. It sounds funny, but you know sometimes people go into these things with a very clear idea of what they're looking for. And if a VC or an investor doesn't want to give them exactly what they're looking for, that's it. I mean, it, there is a lot of compromise involved in fundraising, particularly at the early stage. And you've got to, you know, be prepared to maybe take a agree a valuation that isn't quite what you were hoping for, or Agree to develop to develop your product in a slightly different way from what you were planning
0: the two really interesting things actually i'd love to um touch upon firstly to what you just said um i don't think indeed that's something that a lot of people realize that the image that people have is they show up they present the idea someone likes it or they don't like it they believe in it they don't believe in it you know or mm. you know in the success that it might end up having having in the next few years um, and that's it it's yes or no it's binary but you actually say like there is compromise involved, there are changes or shifts that might end up happening that a lot of people aren't anticipating. Um, valuation is one of them, as you just said, what are some of the other areas that VCs might push back on or actually ask to see some kind of change or compromise in the process? Well, what will VCs push back on? Everything quite often. And they will do
1: a certain amount of due diligence on the business before they're willing to mm-hmm. invest, even with early stage businesses that that can happen. Although obviously with an early stage business where you're looking for seed funding and VCs will invest at the seed funding stage, I might suggest that they may be not the perfect people to invest at that point, but they do. Mm-hmm you know, where all they're looking at is basically your pitch deck because you haven't even formed a company or you've formed a company and, you know, you've done nothing with it. They will push back on pretty much everything. Surprisingly, what they push back on is not necessarily what you'd expect. So sometimes they will, you know, if if founders have put in their business plan that they are not going to take a salary for three years, for example, that is not going to be something you would think maybe initially that that is something that um, an investor would love because you're not spending on founders, often that is a sort of red flag to a founder, because you know, you're indicating that you don't have confidence that you'll be able to pay yourselves. And you're suggesting that you're not worth it, you know, and quite a lot of it is smoke and mirrors and making it clear to investors that you have value is quite important.
0: That is actually really interesting as a part that people would push back on. But also, I think, Going back to something you said earlier about women and investing, that's probably one of the main things women would put in their pitch deck, um, namely saying, okay, I'm not going to take anything from the business. I care more about the business. I want that to succeed, so I will take, I will pay myself out last. What other challenges are there for women currently? Um, because we can't transform ourselves into white males, unfortunately. Um, What are the challenges still and and what can women do to overcome or successfully raise on top of what you just said? Well, I think there are quite a few challenges for women founders. And the main one is, as you say,
1: that, you know, there is unconscious bias in the system. And most of the people looking at pitch decks at VCs tend to be young um, white men. And therefore, they tend to kind of gravitate towards people they recognize and understand. I was listening to a thing by Malcolm Gladwell on this the other day, but who and Malcolm Gladwell suggests that you should do everything including um interviewing staff, et cetera, by email so that you don't speak to people and you don't have face-to-face meetings with them because all of those things create bias in the system. You know, when you interview somebody for a job, you're you're looking at whether you think they'll fit in and, you know, et cetera, rather than what their capabilities are. And so I wonder whether I wonder whether the whole um coronavirus epidemic and the lockdown is going to change things a little bit because i suppose people are more likely to be looking at pitch decks before they get into contact so i kind of slightly hope that changes the landscape a bit actually but you know the fundamental thing is women tend to be more self deprecating than men and they you know, tend to have less confidence. And I think you just have to get over that. You think you just have to be able to talk about yourself. If you're asking somebody to put money into your business and give you cash, which is frankly really uncomfortable for most of us anyway, you know, it's not not a fun thing to do. You've got to be confident and sell yourself as well as your business. And I think that's really hard for women. You just have to really be bullish about
0: it. Now that, that makes sense. And it's really interesting to see indeed how COVID will impact this going forward. That's a really interesting prospect. I mean, it, you know, there are fundamental things that women
1: can't change, right? I'll give you an example with no names, which will become apparent why in a second. But I, I was doing a raise for a client a few years ago, um, and it was a young woman, early 20s, mm-hmm. with a great business idea. She had got investment from a, a pair of brothers. Mm-hmm who were kind of in their 50s, been successful in business, and were looking to invest in stuff. And had invested in a number of other businesses in the same sector. And initially, she agreed with them that they would put in sort of 500,000 for 20% of the business. Very early stage, absolutely perfect. You know, we got a term sheet agreed, everything was ready to go. And then they asked her out for lunch. And the two of them said to her, the thing is, you're very beautiful, she was. And you're in your early 20s and you're clearly going to get married and then have children fairly quickly thereafter. And so we're worried about how serious you are about the business and how how much you're going to concentrate on the business. So rather than you having 80% and us having 20% at the start, we'll flip that round and we'll have 80% and you can have 20%. And if you perform really well in five years time, you can grow your percentage from that initial 20% um, in the business. And she said, she rang me up afterwards to tell me about it, to ask me what I should do. I swore a lot because anybody that knows me knows I swear a lot. And she said, the awful thing was I got engaged at the weekend and luckily I hadn't put the ring on. So I wasn't wearing the ring at the lunch. But what do you think I should do? And I I sort of said, it's your business. You're making it happen. You are going to uh, create. It was a new concept. And so she was terribly worried that because they had the money, they would get to market before her. And so I sort of said to her, look, it's not all about being first to market. Sometimes you want somebody else to break the market in for you, if you like, and make people comfortable with the idea and then come in second with a better product. You know, it's a bit of wishful thinking, but trying to make her feel better about it. But just sort of said, you can't, you know, it's your decision, but you can't accept that. It's absolutely not what they agreed. They signed a, a term sheet with different terms. Um, So she went back to them and very nicely said, thank you very much. I really appreciate the offer, but I'd like to stick with the original deal or I'll go elsewhere. Um, And they went, okay, we're just checking. So it was almost like a test.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: A massive try on, I think. So, you know, but because women tend to be more, not timid, but tend to be more self-effacing and less, less confident at standing up to people, I think that I'd be, It'd be interesting to find out how yeah. many times that kind of thing and happens.
0: They would never ask that of a guy. No, ever.
1: you're in your, you're a young man in your twenties. Clearly, you're going to get married and have kids. How, how focused on the business are you going to be? It's wow. just not something that okay. would ever come up. Sorry, that's completely thrown me off. From work.
0: <laughs> no, that's that, that's really. Thank you for sharing that, actually, because that is such a powerful example of the things to look out for in this process. That again, I think people just do not prepare themselves for. Like you mentioned asking for money is difficult like I think privately and professionally people really have a lot hard. of hang-ups around money it's difficult enough as it is without layering these types of trials through it as well of like how committed are you really mm-hmm. as a woman to mm-hmm. your business versus you know the things you should be committed to like children because you
1: have a private life good god yeah. yes
0: <laughs> exactly so talking about asking for money there are different ways to to get money into the business um you you deal primarily with fundraising But are there any other types that you would um, tell people to consider before maybe they reach your your seed or your, you know, Series A? So if you're
1: looking at early stage funding, what sort of fundraising should you be looking at? Yes. I mean, most of it, particularly with early stage, tends to be Is going to be equity fundraising, i.e., raising money in exchange for shares, or it's going to be debt fundraising, somebody put some debt into Mm -hmm. your business, or it's going to be probably and possibly a combination of the two, what's called a convertible loan, Mm -hmm. where somebody puts money into your business that converts into shares at a later date, which can be really useful if your valuation is terrible. If you would get completely flooded by somebody investing in equity right now because your valuation is very low, Taking a loan and then converting it when your valuation is better is sometimes helpful. But in terms of where the funding comes from, you know, I mentioned earlier that VCs, venture capital are quite, you know, there are some out there that will invest in earlier stage businesses now, Um, even though traditionally it wasn't something, VCs weren't the people that came in to do seed raises because it was too early for them, too risky for them. Um, Now. They do, but you should also be looking at other stuff. So the perfect, to my mind, the perfect way, way to raise money at an early stage is angel investment. Mm-hmm. Firstly, because it's a lot easier than a VC round. They ask for a lot less. Mm-hmm. They're more willing to accept a higher valuation. They're more willing to just let you get on with it. A VC will want to sit on your board. Will want to be involved on a day-to-day basis. An angel investor quite often just wants you to to make it happen and make it a success and they'll sit back and let you do it. Angel Investors also kind of normally provide some value add. So it's not just the money. It may be experience in your sector. It may be a little black book of other people that want to invest in your business, ideally. So looking at high net worth individuals who might want to put money into your business is a really good starting point for seed raise. A lot of people look at, and a lot of people do crowdfunding, I'm known for finding it annoying and not thinking it necessarily always works. I mean, I think if you've got a B2B um, business, so a business that is dealing with other businesses, crowdfunding is probably not going to work as well as it is for a B2C business, purely because apart from anything else, crowdfunding is advertising. And it's a way of growing the kind of group of people that are invested. And i am you can't see me, but I'm doing inverted commas fingers invested in your business kind of really, actually, as well as figuratively. And quite often, if you've got a product that people can buy, if they feel that they own a little bit of your business, that's a great way to get them really kind of committed to your business and committed to its success. That being said, crowdfunding is a difficult process. It, lo- it takes a long time to do. It probably takes about three or four months um, the crowdfunder platform that you go on will require you to find at least half, if not more than half of um, the funding yourself before you get on the platform. So it's not as easy as you just rock up and walk onto the platform and it's all done for you. You've got to find the investment first. The highest I've seen is 89% of the funding you have has to be found yourself. That was a, a B2B business that the crowd. Funders weren't convinced would go very well on the platform, so you have to find a lot of money yourself and you have to pay a percentage of everything you raise to the crowdfunder so if you think about it, it makes your raise more expensive so you know I would say if you've got angel investors out there that you can get money from, they're going to be if you like cheaper because you're not paying a middleman to a percentage of what you raise, whereas if you go to a crowdfunder or many of these kind of businesses that will help you find money, some of which, a lot of whom are legitimate, some of which are absolute kind of rip-off merchants.
0: Interestingly, because from this, it sounds like angel investment is absolutely the way to go. But I can also imagine that these people are quite hard to find. And um, I would also imagine in that kind of, yeah, increasing the time process, you mentioned crowdfunding can take three, four months. Um From the sounds of it, finding a good angel investor and then also going through the process probably also takes a while. What would you, would you have one or two tips on where to start with that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, my tip would be do research. Mm-hmm. You know, and in if you type Angel Investment UK into Google, you'll come up with pages and pages and pages of stuff. And there are all sorts of kind of angel um investor kind of groupings and and pitch events that you can go to. You could go to a pitch event or you used to be able to before the lockdown. You used to be able to go to a pitch event every night of the year. You know, there's always something on. It's quite good, I would say, to speak to people that have done it, to speak to other founders if you can get on an accelerator or an incubator or something like that, that's not, you know, expensive, other people on that might be able to give you tips about where they found investment. Because it's kind of hard to tell the wood from the trees a lot of the time and to tell the charlatans from the people that are are legitimate. And, you know, sometimes you can go to these kind of pitch events where you're kind of you're given five minutes to pitch or whatever and you look out at a sea of faces and actually if you were to kind of mark every one of the people in the room that was an actual investor it would probably be about three people out of kind of 40 because you know a lot of the people that go to those kind of events are people like me. Uh, Who are looking to work with and support, shall we say, the entrepreneur networks and the founders that are looking for money? So it's trying to find the ones where there really are some good investors. And I also think it's worth kind of trying to find out, particularly in your particular sector, who the kind of serial investors are. I don't know that there's anything better than trying to get a personal contact. So, like asking everybody you know if they know somebody who knows somebody who knows X. And it's the same with VCs. If you're looking to raise from VCs, send them emails, find out who the, the, the people are that are looking at the pitch decks, send them an email, ask them for a coffee, just ask them for their advice. They're perfectly happy normally to come out and have a chat. They might not, you know, think that your, your investment is the right thing for them to do now, but they may say keep in touch. And maybe when you're a bit bigger or when you've done X, Y, and Z, we might be interested. So it's kind of just kind of those personal relationships and nurturing those that's really important
0: now that makes sense but I think that is time well spent um especially uh like you say you don't know how you might connect with people going forward how these relationships pan out so the more you can get in touch with people and learn from everyone the the more I think you 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 everything is a step forward right with everything you're taking a step forward in your business um you also mentioned lockdown how are you doing it's been uh, it's been quite a few weeks of lockdown now <laughs> um yeah i mean for me
1: personally i'm actually secretly quite enjoying it i'm one of those people that i thought i would hate it because i like to go into the office i'm going to go into the office later this afternoon there's nobody there but i'm going to go in to visit my two screens because i really miss them and i've just got a little laptop at home but i thought i would hate it because i like the daily seeing people and chatting to people. But actually, I get a lot more, lot more done at home without the constant distractions than in the office. So in that respect, it works quite well for me. The firms as a whole, it, you know, everybody's working remotely. Lawyers can with surprising ease, it seems. So I think in general, it's going to change the way that a lot of businesses do business after this, because, you know, we've all worked out that actually we can work from home, that it's not terrifying and that most things are achievable. You know, there are things about the law that are still quite traditional and don't change. Like we have something called DX, which is kind of a legal post that has to be delivered to the office. And, you know, quite often with some departments, like my real estate team, they get a lot of kind of huge plans and things like that that they have to look at. And you can only do that in person and physically. Um, Signing documents, you know we've just about got the hang of signing things remotely but it is um there's a lot more kind of admin to set up and everything takes a bit longer.
0: So yeah I mean in a sense I'll be kind of happy
1: to get back to the office.
0: But interestingly enough so whilst COVID has impacted your office uh, I'm also curious to hear how has it change the landscape of investment funding, the funds available or the types of businesses that they are choosing to invest in now?
1: I think in the the bigger scheme of things, investment has slowed down. You know, there is some investment that um, has gone great guns and I've had a few clients do fantastic fundraisers during the lockdown, but they are in very specific sectors. So anything in health, health tech, that kind of area, obviously is a good sector to be in right now remote working or remote delivery or remote shopping all those sort of things yes of course you know it's the perfect thing to be in right now and you know i've had I, i've had a client do a fundraise um last week that's remote, a remote shopping app which has just had people queuing up to invest so there is still opportunity out there And I guess there's more money at the moment chasing fewer opportunities because people don't want to necessarily invest in things that don't work in a lockdown, which obviously means that some people's fundraisers, and I had a few clients that were doing fundraisers before the start of the lockdown in things like holiday tech and things like that, you know, travel, not not the best thing to be in right now. And you're just going to have to sit it out. You know, there are things, and, and one thing I thought we'd probably touch on is the future fund, which you probably heard went live last week, which is the government potentially putting 250 million into various businesses. It is no surprise to anyone that everything is taking longer, funding rounds are taking longer, the investment world has dipped a bit. And apart from anything else, that is presumably because people's confidence has dropped, and you know i 've seen seen a few things recently saying that um entrepreneurs and founders kind of confidence that they'll raise money has diminished, and I would imagine you know that that's pretty similar in terms of investors' confidence angel investors' confidence in in putting their money to work because to an extent you know you would think. Interest rates are still really low. They might go into minus numbers. You know, what are you going to do with money if it's sitting in a bank? You know, frankly, I would say this, but one of the best things to do with it is invest in startups. Because if you you get things like EIS and SEIS, and, you know, you can, even if it goes horribly wrong, you still get a lot of your money back in tax breaks. And so, you know, it's an ideal thing to do if you've got money sitting around. But in, in a circumstance like this, I think everybody tends to batten down the hatches and think, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to be spending that money. I think I might just keep it in the bank for a bit longer in case I need to spend it on actually surviving. And so I think that there is less money to go around right now. Yeah,
0: that's a shame. Also, for our listeners, EIS and SEIS are UK government tax breaks for investing in startups. Um, I will have a look to see what's available in other countries, but it's something that personally I've always found really great. I've invested in a company and got a tax break through it as well. Yeah, so so due to like people wanting access to to liquidity, even though it's kind of sitting around doing nothing in a bank, um, it you know people are just more hesitant. I think the uncertainty has played a huge role. In just people not being quite sure what's going on. Um, In just the last few weeks, things have loosened up a little bit in the UK. Off the back of that, have you seen any changes already or is it too soon to tell? I think it's too soon to tell. What I have seen is a lot of people. So, the Future Fund,
1: just to to give background, is a government initiative whereby the government have put £250 million worth of cash um, in a pot for companies to um, take advantage of how they're doing it is a convertible loan note that I talked about earlier. So the government will lend some money and it will convert into shares if certain things happen. So, but what the government has said is we want you to match that money with the same amount of money from investors. So, you know, effectively it's the government trying to get individual and and VCs and it is a feels very like it's something that VCs would like. VCs to invest in startups because they're investing alongside the government. So they don't have to put so much money into the startup for the startup to do a reasonable size round. Now, in order to be, in order to be eligible for it, you have to have raised at least £250,000 in the last five years in equity as a company Um, And you have to have raised it before the 19th of April, I think. So, you know, you kind of will know by now whether you qualify or not. The application process went live last week. And what you have to do is your lead investor, who isn't the government, has to make the application. And what you get is a convertible loan that is for a three-year period. And if you raise at least as much again as you raised from the government and the individual investors in the future fund round, Um, in that three-year period, their loan converts into shares at at least a 20% discount to the round. So it is not fantastic because you'll have to give, you know, you will have to give um, the future fund investors a 20% discount on whatever your valuation is at the time you do a fundraise. But I would say that you have to be sure that you are going to do at least a fundraise of the same size again in the next three years, because if you get to the end of the three year period and the loan is repayable, there is a 100% redemption premium, i.e. you pay back twice what you borrowed. So if you borrowed half a million and you don't do another half a million round in three years, and the, the um, future fund investors decide they want to be paid back at the end of three years, you would pay back a million. So you know, it's created some liquidity in the market. The government will become a massive investor in loads of businesses. Um, it, you know, I don't think 250 million will last very long because you can raise up to 5 million on the scheme for one company. But um, it's also very risky. So I've I've had a few clients look at it. A few of them are doing it. Some of them have thought, oh, no, there's probably other ways that we can make get money. Um, but it has kind of loosened things up a little bit. Um, and SEIS, and the SEED Enterprise Investment Scheme and the Enterprise Investment Scheme, already, you know, have kept things fairly loose because they do give tax breaks that anybody who's having to pay income tax kind of massively welcomes anyway. So, you know, I don't think that in that sense, the coronavirus has kind of completely stopped investing. I think just people have got a little bit more nervous and things are taking longer.
0: Okay, but that's that's pretty hopeful. And I think especially for people starting even earlier than that Mm. who haven't even raised the two hundred fifty thousand pounds initially, it does mean that things haven't come to a complete standstill and that as the everything picks up again, by the time they might be ready to raise funds, you know, things things should overall still be possible with the same amount of, you know, uncertainty and risk that I guess has always surrounded fundraising to an extent. Um, what are some of the most common questions that you get from your clients now around you know, what next or what to do or it could even be more general, not necessarily yeah. coronavirus related? I get an awful lot of
1: questions and quite often they're sort of slightly random, like what should I wear to this meeting? I mean, I don't know why they think I'll know, but there we go. But um, <laughs> I guess that one of the most common questions is around valuation. You know, what is the right valuation? How much of my company should I be giving away? Not that you're giving it away because you're getting investment for that chunk of your equity, but it feels a bit like you're giving it away. And, you know, it's one that's really hard for me to answer because valuation isn't a precise art. And I wouldn't do a valuation anyway. I would get an accountant to value a business. But, you know, I think you have to be thinking about all those things we talked about right at the start of the podcast in terms of what makes people invest in businesses. And, you know, if you've got a great management team, if you've got a product that you can already show works, if you own all the intellectual property in relation to it, what you're doing, all those things are going to increase the value of your business. You know, I sort of think that when you're talking... To VCs and VCs are likely to be the ones that are going to really push back on your valuation. And when you're talking to VCs, you know, it's a bit like if, if I were to sell my flat tomorrow, if I put my flat on the market and I got, you know, five offers at the asking price, I'd know that I really un- undervalued my flat in the same manner. If you, um, Get a valuation. You get pushback from a, a VC. We really like your idea. We'd love to invest, but we feel like your valuation is a bit toppy. You kind of know you've gone in at the right number, and you're always free to negotiate from there. But you know there are no hard and fast, and it's really difficult to say. Oh yes, give them fifteen percent of your business, or give them five percent of your business, because every business is different. And what you've you've just got to think about, I think, apart from anything else is the long term kind of plan you have for the business nobody's business works out exactly as they planned but you know if you think you're going to have to do five fundraisers or three fundraisers before you get to a point where the business is running itself and doesn't need another injection of cash kind of plan long term and work out what would i be comfortable owning as a percentage of the business at the end of this okay so what what percentage am i willing to give away right now given that You know, I'm going to raise a couple more times and I'm potentially going to get diluted each time because it's, you know, it's very easy for early stage businesses, particularly where you don't have any money to say to various people, people who are doing your coding, designing you an app, doing your brand, whatever, I'll give you some shares instead of paying you. And, you know, you've suddenly gone, I'll give you 10%, I'll give you 10%, I'll give you 10%. 10% doesn't sound like a huge amount, but once you've given five people 10%, you've lost half the company.
0: Exactly.
1: So it's really just appreciating the value of what you've got and not thinking, you know, I would say starting by thinking about much smaller numbers for things like that, like two or 3% is of something valuable is worth a lot more than 10% of something that isn't.
0: Or looking ahead, even any advice that you'd want to share with with people who are looking to to start a tech company? Plan, plan ahead,
1: plan really carefully. Even if it doesn't work to plan, you've done the thinking and don't think that it's going to take you five minutes. I get a lot of people come to me, I want to do a fundraise. They might even have, you know, one or two people that they've spoken to and who are interested in investing. They're like, I want to do a fundraise, but I'm about to run out of cash, so we have to do it in the next two weeks it's just not achievable or conceivable that it you know it's going to happen and i can do my darndest to make it happen but actually getting the money out of investors takes more than two weeks normally
0: i don't think i've ever heard of of a fundraiser in under two weeks does that happen at all ever
1: no no
0: but people think it people sort of leave it too late and they leave
1: it till they really desperately need the money and that does two things you know Fundraisers never happen in the timescale that you plan. If you plan for a month, it'll be six weeks. If you plan for six weeks, it'll be two months. It's always going to take longer than you're planning and you run out of cash. But also it makes you desperate and it makes you willing to accept terms or accept a valuation that's really not ideal. And you've got to, I think with VCs particularly, you've got to remember they need you as much as you need them the whole reason VCs exist is to invest in things. They need to find things to invest in. And if you've got a really good idea, they want to invest in you. Don't think that they are doing you a favor by giving you money. They're actually investing in something because they think it's going to be a success and they think they're going to make money out of it. And you, know, you need to treat it as seriously as that and make sure that you're protecting yourself as much as you possibly can in the fundraising process. And that's where you need a lawyer. Obviously.
0: I was just about to say that sounds like a perfect segue because um let's be honest, you every time we talk, I get A extremely excited and B I feel like I learn so much more and I think as well as a world, it is very, um, it is very complex and it's very easy to make big mistakes early on where you, like you said, either give away too much, you're not quite sure about time scales and you can run out of cash and actually lose your entire business in the process. So how can people learn more about this and how can they learn more from you and work with you? Um, well,
1: they can give me a call. Basically, I will talk to anybody it's well known and you're not kind of engaging me or committing to anything by having a conversation i'm happy to chat to people the firm that um, i'm managing partner of is called jolson j o e l s o n so just look at the website and i'm on it and um, i'm happy to talk to anybody really but um you know i i do think it i think a lot of people think that certainly seed investment they, you know, what they want to do is make it as cheap as possible. And so they try and avoid lawyers because they think we're going to be expensive. We are more expensive than not doing it with lawyers because, you know, you have to pay us. But we're probably less expensive than not doing it with lawyers and screwing it all up, which is quite often where I see, you know, where I end up getting quite a lot of work is people who, have, for example, think they've done an SEIS seed round or an EIS round, but they haven't complied with the legislation, and therefore it hasn't worked. You have to take money in and issue shares. And a lot of people will take money in and think that because they've said to somebody, I'm going to give you some shares, they've done it, and you haven't. And so, you know, with things like that, where it's if it's any reasonable amount of money, I think, you know, in the long run, getting a lawyer and making sure it's done correctly is going to save you money in the long run but there are sites out there that you know you can go onto the internet and download documents like a shareholders agreement articles of association that kind of thing to do a fundraise but what they are not is lawyers if it goes wrong you can't sue them for you know um, negligence or not helping you properly so there's no protection for you and they're only as good as the extent to which you fill in what they've given you I was doing some work with an incubator where I was going in and sitting with people and giving them an hour of legal advice for free. And this guy came in and said, I don't believe in lawyers. It's a complete waste of time. I just raised a million for my business and I didn't use a lawyer. I don't need one. And I said, well, can I have a look at your investment agreement? You know, the agreement that you did to raise the money. Yeah, sure. Here you go. There, you see, I did this this myself and I didn't need a lawyer. And I said... You, I presume, realize that you've given your investor a veto right so that you can never raise more money unless the investor agrees, which kind of completely stymies potential future raising of capital because the investor can always say no if they don't want to be diluted. And he says, No, how have I done that? And I'm like, Well, you know, you've got a list of veto rights here, and one of them is you can't issue more shares. So you can't raise more money without their consent. And then he's, he sent me an email, a couple of days later saying i didn't think i need lawyers but i realize now i do and i'm going to instruct you so why should anybody know the legal intricacies of raising money you shouldn't it's really boring you probably don't want to know it but you need somebody who does because otherwise you can really screw things up
0: wow great well on that powerful note do your due diligence and (laughs) don't trust (laughs) sorry on a bit of a negative note there no but it's you know don't trust random documents (laughs) off the internet i think that's fair that being said though i think it is also incredibly exciting kind of what you were saying there are people looking to um support up and coming companies like angels but also vc firms mm-hmm. you know need need interesting innovative new uh, and not necessarily disruptive, but, you know, exciting new blood into the industry. So the fact that yeah. this exists, that, you know, you are probably busy with tons of clients who are growing businesses is, I think, a very positive, positive one to look at indeed. Yes,
1: I think that's true.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Philippa. This has been so interesting. And a pleasure. proper proper war stories have been shared, I think, for people to to have a good think about. Yeah. Yeah,
1: the stories always make it more interesting, I think.
0: It really does. Um, that that was brilliant. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, I hope you can agree that that was quite the conversation about raising funds and how that relationship with an investor might look like and the rather crazy and difficult situations you might find yourself in sometimes. I'm not quite sure how, how I would respond if I'd be asked, you know, How serious are you taking your business given that you might get married and have kids? But I think it is a reality. um, It's a reality that a lot of women entrepreneurs face. um, And as a female founder, looking to raise capital, something that you do want to prepare yourself for. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. As Philippa said, you can get in touch with her if you just want to chat or if you have any specific questions about either agreements shareholder agreements funding agreements but also you know all aspects of you know early stage startup law especially if you're based in the UK but she also knows a lot of people around the world either way so I'll leave all of her contact information in the show notes for you and that was another episode of cutting through tech now I hope you had a great time and some of the upcoming content is going to be quite fun We have one more bonus episode for you before we launch in our two-week program around WWDC. Now, that is Apple's big event that's coming up. It is, for the first time ever, going to be completely remote um, and no physical keynote. And it is set to start on the 22nd of June. WWDC stands for Worldwide Developer Conference. So you might be wondering, how does that apply to me? But it's interesting because Apple will announce a lot of the new bits of tech that they're putting into their software platforms that you can leverage when you're making apps. If they announce, say, new AR technology and you are in the kind of augmented or virtual reality business, you might be very excited to hear that. So what they'll be announcing and what that means for you will all be covered on the show, of course. Now, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you next time. Bye.